The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Hello and welcome to you all. This is a live Clubland Q&A here on Stein Online. My name is Andrew Lott, not Mark Stein, not Laura Rosen-Cohen, not Melissa House. although the proliferation of guest hosts in recent months is something to behold and know. I am the OG guest host to the guest host here, and it is my great privilege to be with you. In keeping with tradition, I should tell you where I am in London, Ontario, not London, Kiribati, or London, Kentucky, or uh, London, England, or anything like that. It is uh, just after three o'clock Eastern time, but uh, in keeping with uh, the tradition of Stein Online, I will uh, go. It is uh, 10 p.m. in the evening in Addis Ababa. It is 2 a.m. Saturday morning in Hanoi. Uh, it is an hour past that, 3 a.m. in Perth, Australia, the land of the Aussies down under, and we're very grateful to have any of the Aussie night owls with us. It is 9.02 a.m. Friday morning in Honolulu. It is 11.02 in Anchorage, Alaska. 10.02 p.m. in Istanbul, and a lovely, uh, no, sorry, yes, it is 10 at 10.02 a.m. in Istanbul. I was mixing it up with Islamabad, where it is uh, just after midnight, so those uh, Pakistanis tuning in, uh, perhaps there's no cricket on tonight, or enjoying a little late-night clubland Q&A. I decided to go out of order, because I pulled up the list, and I, uh, you have to decide whether you do it in alphabetical or chronological, and I did alphabetical this time, because I wanted to uh, mix and match, as they say, and it's 9.03 in Kaliningrad, but but I think I get taken off the air if I mention Kaliningrad. So uh, pay no attention to that to balance it out. It is uh, 10.03 p.m. in Kiev, and I didn't take a breath before, so I couldn't do the full Steinian Kiev. Although uh, Zelensky is in my nation's capital of Ottawa right now. He is, I don't know if he's finished or if he's still speaking. He's speaking to the House of Commons. So I know some Canadians are following along with that. Nevertheless, it is good to be with you. We don't want to spend too, too much time on the times zones alone with so much to get to. I had, I'm doing uh, something a little bit differently normally because I, I do a regular show which is very creatively titled The Andrew Lawton Show and I have like a broadcast computer which is the computer into which like everything's plugged in, the camera and the microphones and the monitors and all of that and a little while ago I noticed that the Ethernet port by which I, I plug directly into the internet so it's quicker and more reliable than Wi-Fi on that computer stopped working. And I brought it into the Apple store and they do the whole thing and they say, oh, well, you need a new logic board and it's, you know, you have the extended warranty, so you're fine. But we don't have the logic board, so we've got to order one in. And they order the part in, and this was like, I brought it in a week and uh, eight days ago. I brought it in last Thursday. And then they call me yesterday and say, oh, well, uh, we fixed the logic board, but apparently that wasn't the issue. It was that your Ethernet port was burnt. Uh, because I, a little while ago, I thought I saw out of the corner of my eye a bolt of lightning in my house. And I believe that might have been it. I believe there, when lightning was coming up, there was like this weird surge. And anyway, the, the long and short of it is that now I have like a giant pin cushion, everything plugged into my poor little laptop in front of me, the microphones, the monitors, and it is like physically warm to the touch. So if my lap, if you hear like a blast in the middle of the show, I haven't been airstriked by Biden for something or other. Well, I mean, maybe I have, but I it's more than likely that my computer has just spontaneously combusted from all the things. Things I'm doing. So uh, we'll try to make it through the remaining 55 minutes without such an episode, but uh, one never knows these days. In, in any event, it is so good to always uh, be able to do this. I, I have a great deal of fun doing the live Q&As. 
In particular, because they take a slight, I mean, it's difficult because sometimes you need to be prepared because you never know if someone's going to ask you about like the, you know, latest poll numbers in, you know, Eswatini or something, but uh, you don't have to like prepare as much because it could be more conversational. So uh, you can throw me some humdingers if you'd like, though. There is a question from Johnny Woodrow who writes, Dear Mark, uh, th there's a follow-up question I see. Sorry, just noted it's Andrew, but same set of questions. So we're keeping with the substitute level excellence in guest host theme here. Uh, Dear Andrew, I choose to read it. Just watched your speech from the internet. This was not my speech, but he's talking about Mark's uh, tremendous speech before the Heartland Institute on climate change. Absolutely side-splitting. I walked my 11-year-old through your impeccable comic timing as you mimed extracting page after page of comments on lawyers. I was laughing loud enough for him to run in to see what was going on. I've been reading Patrick Wood's work on the rise of technocracy in the 1930s, its rebirth as the sustainable development agenda, and its interconnections with transhumanism. He manages to connect the Trilateral Commission, UN, the Net Zero, Green Agenda together as various projects which aim at rendering all aspects of life right down to the genetic level manageable and transformable by elites. Have you come across his work? What are your thoughts on what is really driving the green agenda? Is Rishi just repackaging it all with his rollback of, that's in quotation marks, by the way, rollback of net zero goals because his technocrat gang have rushed a bit quick and have flashed their hand. Uh, so I, I am familiar with Patrick Wood, but only in passing. And I, I think you've told me more about him in this question than I, I otherwise had. So I, I can't say I've read any of him, but I, I am very familiar with the themes in this question. And as I've talked about in, in past Q&As, I've had the opportunity, I don't know if it's an opportunity or a misfortune or, or somewhere in between, but I, I've been to Davos twice. But before you tune out, I'm not one of the invited guests of Klaus Schwab. I've never eaten the bugs. I've never been penetrated by Klaus Schwab. And uh, well, unless, I don't know, who knows, unless I, you know, passed out one night at my little chalet in uh, Klosterplatz. But uh, nevertheless, I don't believe I've been penetrated or eaten the bugs by Klaus Schwab. But I've been there and I, I've spent a fair bit of time covering the WEF and, you know, by extension, the United Nations. And certainly we are seeing a rise of the technocracy. And, you know, one interesting thing that I would note on this is that this week the UN had one of its, you know, the, all of its meetings are the same, but they give them different names. And they had one of the meetings about the Sustainable Development Goals, which are the uh, 17 or so SDGs that they all agreed to in 2015 and you know on on the surface are benign things like we want no poverty and no hunger and it's okay well that's great you know who could disagree with that but it's about the policies that come about in support of these sustainable development goals that are so problematic especially when you start talking about climate and environmental stuff and you get governments that pretend that they are bound to these things like the united nations does not exist without input and buy-in from the nations who are supposedly united. I mean, there is no such thing as a UN agenda unless the countries in the UN decide to empower it by giving up their sovereignty, their money, and, and their political capital to this body. And the problem is that it's very circular. So countries will sign on to these things like the Global Compact for Migration or the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And they're all, when you criticize it, they all say the same thing, which is, oh, oh but it's non-binding. It's but, but then when they want to enact some policy uh, three, four, five years down the road, they hide behind it. They say, oh, well, we have to do this because we need to meet our commitments to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People or our commitments to the UN Migration Pact or our commitments to the Sustainable Development Goals. And it was actually interesting. One of the things, Davos and the SDGs are linked. Like there's an SDG tent when you go to Davos and, you know, it's a place where you go and there's nothing more sustainable than having to spend like $5 on a coffee when you are trying to get out of the cold. But that's what happens in the Sustainable Development Goal tent. And they put on shows there and not, sh not shows. I don't want to make it think like they're doing like some, you know, vaudeville act on the promenade in Davos, but they have like little talks and lectures and stuff. But when you go around, all of these other places are completely beholden to the almighty SDGs. So I may have told this story in the past, but the first time I went to Davos, having never been, I saw these people wearing 
these SDG pins, which they look like Trivial Pursuit boards with these little colored pie wedges, each of which represents the so-called goal in question. And you see, oh, wow, this guy must work for the UN, and this guy must work for the UN, and wow, the UN has a lot of people. And there was one guy I, you know, happened to recognize or thought I did, and I went up and, you know, saw his name tag, and it was Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft. So you'd, you'd think the president of Microsoft could wear a Microsoft pin or a lapel pin of some other variety, but no, he's walking around saying that, you know, we are committed to the SDGs. And all of these different sessions and seminars and panels, they say, oh, well, this session is good for SDG 2, SDG 5, and SDG 12, but the session that starts right after this one is good for SDG 1, 8, and 9. So if you, you know, hang around all day, you'll eventually, you know, have learned enough to solve all 17 of these great pressing problems. And, you know, it all sounds so ridiculous on the surface because it is. But you have countries that are completely hiding behind these things and using it as justification for them imposing national policies that they want. I mean, no one's forced to do anything. It is them who are trying to force us to do it and using these institutions as cover. And, and I mean, the World Economic Forum is remarkably transparent in some ways. You know, they put up all their sessions. They say, well, yes, you know, you can watch it online even if you couldn't afford to fly to the Swiss mountains and all that. I, I Just for example, like I've, when I've been, finding a place to stay is next to impossible because before they even announce the dates of the World Economic Forum annual meeting, the WEF snatches up every hotel room in Davos and, and Klosters, which is the the next little village over. And, you know, the first time I had to stay in some like really weird, tiny Airbnb, the next town over. And this previous time I actually had a, a decent Airbnb. This time, uh, my colleagues and I are staying at a hotel in Donburn, Austria, which is an hour and a half away because it's the closest we could find that wasn't going to cost us, you know, $12,000 a night or whatever. So uh, if you want to throw in $12,000 a night and sponsor my stay in Davos, please let me know and we'll... <laughs> We'll, we'll turn it into a whole thing, but uh, but in reality, they, they don't want people there. They don't want people there that are going to not drink from the same tap as them. And not that they drink from the tap, but you, you get my meaning there. And they're very transparent about, you know, all the sessions and whatnot, but it's the things that happen behind closed doors, these meetings, these packs, these multilateral conferences that are never really announced, but they come out with and say, oh, we've all agreed to this. And you're like, well, I, I didn't even know we were discussing this, but there we are. And again, countries then hide behind that. And it's all of us that lose. So I will take a look into that work that you've recommended there, Johnny Woodrow. And I thank you for your question. We have one from Matt here who writes, I am trying to follow the spat between Canada and India over the alleged assassination of a Sikh leader. Can you shed some light on this? Will this mean we'll be spared any more pictures of Justin as a Bollywood bridesmaid? And there's also one from Jay Sparrow on this who writes, Canada's present spat with India is a true shame. Commonwealth brother nations just shouldn't let relations slip that way. What say you? It looks rather embarrassing any way you cut it. Either the Indian government has gone Putin and is rubbing out dissidents outside its borders, or Canada is making slanderous accusations with insufficient proof, a cheap shot to what end. Both Canada and India live in shark-infested waters, so have bigger fish to fry. I just love how that came out. Yeah, that's a very, I may borrow that one, uh, Jay Sparrow, and I, I thank you for that question. So I don't know. I mean, this was kind of a global news story. So I assume people have seen at least peripherally what's happened here. But the nub of it is that on Monday, Justin Trudeau came out and made a pretty explosive allegation in the House of Commons, which is that the Indian government was involved, the Canadian government believes, in the murder of a Sikh extremist in British Columbia in June. He was killed by two masked gunmen. They are, so far, they've not identified any of these killers. And the, the Sikh separatism issue is a bit of a weird one, and I, I don't want to go too deeply into the weeds here, but it's a bigger thing in Canada than it is in India. And that's the bizarre part of this, is that Sikh separatism exists, the, the Khalistani movement in the India exists, but it's kind of old news in a lot of ways. But Canada's commitment to multiculturalism and diversity has meant Canada has in large numbers and to a very large degree 
imported ethnic cleavages and ethnic tensions and ethnic conflicts from all around the world, which means Canada has imported the Sikh separatist issue, which has taken on a greater life form in Canada than it has in India. And this is a direct consequence of Canada's multiculturalism. It's not all Sikhs in Canada, uh, of which there are about 2% of the population that are, are separatists or, or Khalistani extremists. It's a small subset of those even, but one that has a very large footprint relative to its size. And, and we have seen Sikh extremism and separatism. I mean, the Air India bombing going back however many years now still looms very large. And there are, for politicians who want the votes of ethnic communities in Canada, very real political consequences to denouncing Sikh extremism and Khalistani extremism. And, and one of the major party leaders in Canada of, of the NDP, which is our, our socialist party, our, our Lib Dems or our democratic socialists, if you will. I know they're not really a, a party per se, but the NDP leader is a, a Sikh man himself who just twists himself into these ridiculous knots when he's ever asked any questions about this because he doesn't want to condemn uh, a figure or figures who he knows are kind of looked on favorably by some of his supporters. And all of that is, I, I guess, part and parcel of, of why this is such a distinctly Canadian population. We have more uh, Indians in Canada than I think any other country except India does. We certainly have more Sikhs in Canada than any other country in the world does, apart from India. And the reality here is that Canada has now become a home of ethnic tensions that should be left to the countries where these tensions originated. And there's not really a solution to that, but it explains why Canada has this Khalistani extremist problem. And, and Canada has harbored these extremists, which is why India has always viewed it so unfavorably. And, and Justin Trudeau has been a lot more permissive and sympathetic to some of these radicals than his predecessor, Stephen Harper, the conservative, was. And if you go back, like the relationship between Canada and India was very great when the conservatives were in. India's got a billion people, same language, same legal system, a lot of trade ties, family ties, ties in education to Canada. They are an ally and they, they should be an ally because they're the only real global player that could be a, a counterbalance to China. If you want to talk about picking your friends in the world. But Trudeau decided that India should just be home to a giant costume party when he went in 2018 and brought like a trunk full of all of these varying outfits. And on that trip, I mean, everyone was so focused on the costumes, they failed to realize that he literally brought a convicted terrorist in the Canadian delegation. Like he, he brought a guy who had been convicted for trying to assassinate a politician to India and it was an Indian politician because, again, of this ethnic cleavage, this ethnic tension. And this was just a complete humiliation. Like, the number of supporters I picked up for, from India then, because they were just looking at Justin Trudeau and being like, I, like, explain this guy to us. And I said, as the Canadian, I, I wish I could. And I've been doing interviews in India in the last couple of days with people, and it's a very similar phenomenon where uh, you have Indian media that just look at Justin Trudeau as an absolute joke. But now it's no longer a joke to them because he has accused their government of complicity in murder. And I I've said on this issue, if there is evidence that the Indian government was responsible for an extrajudicial, an extrajudicial, I can't even say that word, extrajudicial, there we go, assassination on Canadian soil, then that is shameful and disgraceful. It's a, an encroachment on sovereignty and I think should be dealt with. But the evidence has not been presented. And even more bizarrely, we learned this week that Justin Trudeau may have announced it when he did for the sole purpose of scooping the Globe and Mail which had given the government notice it was going to report this story within 24 hours. Then all of a sudden, just Justin Trudeau scratches out some you know, notes on the back of a napkin and makes the announcement himself. But my thinking on this, my theory on this, is that they may have been working up a lead. They may have had some intel. Maybe they were completely confident. But they announced this prematurely for the sole reason the sole reason of not having a news story that would make them look weak and ineffectual on this. And what was interesting is that a couple of weeks back, the G20 summit was taking place in New Delhi, and Justin Trudeau was there 
and supposedly put this to Modi directly. But when Modi, the Prime Minister of India, published his video recap of all the things that happened at the G20, he had like him shaking everyone's hand. He was shaking Erdogan's hand and Rishi Sunak's hand and Joe Biden's hand and all of that. He left out one figure, and that was Justin Trudeau. Uh, So now we know why. It was because Justin Trudeau, to his face, had brought up this accusation of murder, which the Indian government has, like, in no uncertain terms, denied outright. They haven't even left themselves a bit of wiggle room. They've said, like, this is an outrageous allegation. Both countries have expelled diplomats from each other, and India has now suspended visas for Canadians. So any Canadian wanting to, you know, pick up and go to Mom, uh, go to Mumbai or New Delhi or something can no longer do that. And, you know, I guess the thing is that, sure, it's plausible. It's plausible that the Indian government wanted to do something like this. It's also plausible that organized crime was involved, of which there's a fair bit with some of these South Asian uh, communities in Canada. And the other part of it, though, is that Justin Trudeau has not earned the benefit of the doubt from anyone. So when he makes this explosive allegation with very real consequences for geopolitical relations, it's no surprise that Rishi Sunak comes out and says, well, uh, you know, we're, we're still going to proceed with our trade talks with India, and yeah, we're going to denounce Khalistani terrorism, and the U.S. as well, very similarly, didn't want to bring up any huge public support for Canada. We've not heard much from, actually anything really, from Australia, New Zealand, which are the other uh, so-called Five Eyes partners. So the reason is that Trudeau has not earned the benefit of the doubt, either from Canadians or from the international community, which is why something like this has even something like this has backfired more on him than it has on India. It was a very long answer to your question, but I it was a, an important topic, so I'm glad I had the opportunity to weigh in on that. George Pereira writes, Andrew, the story about the two feral Morlocks who laughingly ran down the retired police chief continues to get worse. This is the uh, story in Las Vegas. A bail hearing on September 26th. They both brag that they won't do any time. Uh, KLAS, to its shame, in writing about the video, said the driver was being urged to bump him repeatedly. They stole four cars and hit two elderly bicyclists, severely injuring one and killing the other. And this in just a couple of hours. This is just one of similar numerous stories. I don't see how any of this will end except in blood. You know, it is... One of these stories that comes across as both shocking and unsurprising at the same time, it's two teens that were charged in this uh, hit-and-run killing of a 64-year-old. Andreas Probst is the guy's name. Their identities aren't being made public because they're minors. And this was a guy who served for 24 years. I, you know, never heard of him before. I'm not aware of, you know, the nature of his career, but I I have to assume in the absence of any other evidence that it was a dignified and respectful career. And he's just out there enjoying his time. It's not in the line of duty. He's just uh, basically enjoying his retirement as he has had the ability to do for the last 14 years. And then two teenagers come and do this. And, you know, I've got a, a large category in my mind of of the crap happens file of of stuff that's horrible and tragic but is not really avoidable that's just going to happen in society and I, I have found that there was too much in that file and I had to take a look back at you know the old first principles as Mark always talks about and say you know how many of these things maybe are preventable and you know teens have always done stupid stuff but teens have not always done with alarming number the amount of evil things that we're seeing now. I mean, there have been stories of uh, teenagers that have been involved in vicious beatings of homeless people. There have been stories of teens doing hit and runs and stuff like this. And and it, a lot of it is, remarkably, a lot of it is very easy to prosecute because they're filming it. They're putting these videos on TikTok. They're streaming them. They're enjoying them. They're cackling about them, as was the case here. And, you know, truth be told, I don't know how much of this is an anomaly versus something that is a direct reflection of our times. But I do know that it's happening far too frequently for us to be comfortable or or happy with it. We have a culture and climate in which there seem to be no consequences for people's actions. I mean, even adults that commit crimes, you can commit something violent and heinous and be out on bail just in time to do it again in the afternoon. 
And it's very difficult to imagine a situation in which the justice system actually seeks justice when minors are involved, especially now. So uh, I'll certainly be following the case, but it's an unfortunate one all around. Uh, we have a question here from John Fauci, not Fauci, as I believe uh, it's the misspeak has happened before. Good afternoon, Andrew. Would you classify the current transcontinental ruling class in power today as a gang? Are they a formal bl- uh, formal block cross-pollinating of the WEF, Tories, Labour, Democratic, Republican parties, EU, or a cartel within these organizations that has poisoned them? Is it just the progressive utopian attempt to euthanize the poor and the Third Reich's attempt to genocide believers in the God of Israel? Is it existential good versus evil, or is it the untouchables? Are they a festering wound that can be disinfected and healed? What is the true political approach of those of us attempting to affect a cultural awareness of our fellow citizens? Are there not any decent people of power and wealth, or will they all be consumed by this institutional decadence? I'm going to think about that for a second while I take a sip of my coffee. A very needed sip of coffee, if I must admit. I I would say two things on this, first and foremost, John. I, I think, you know, there's a little bit of everything in it. And the one point that I cannot stress enough about these organizations is that there truly is this amorphous mass that you can call the globalists, because these groups are all interconnected. I mean, the the WEF, the United Nations, the global conference circuit, some of these NGOs, some multinational corporations. I mean, these are all interchangeable in a lot of ways, because the people on the board of one are on the board of the other, and they or they have a job at one, and then they move to the other one, but then they still become an advisor to the first one. And basically, these people are all part of a club. And you and I are not members of the club, and you and I never will be a part of the club. And for some people, their membership in the club is just for a sense of purpose and belonging. And for others, it is about control. And it's about them wanting to remake the image, or remake the world in their image. And COVID gave them a license to do that. And now they're trying to do it on climate change, as Mark Morano has talked about, as I've spoken about, certainly as Mark has spoken about. And people are letting them. And and when I go back to what I said earlier about how the problem is countries that so willingly abdicate their national interests and national agenda to this, that's where we all do have power. Because I think people need to start bringing this local thing to the forefront. I, I mean, I... I I saw a clip from January the other day that I had not seen when it first came about. And I I honestly watched this and was convinced that it had to have been a deep fake. And a deep fake is when someone takes a video of someone and they copy uh, their voice through some computer program. I don't know. I'm describing this in like the most Luddite way possible, but it's basically a fake video that never existed that looks like, oh, Jordan Peterson saying this or, uh, you know, Barack Obama saying this. And some of these are, are very convincing. Some of them you can tell are a little bit off, but I was watching this and I was convinced it was a deep fake because I'm, there's no way he said this. And it was a video of Sir Keir Starmer. And he was being interviewed, and I can't remember the name of the, the publication in the UK, but he was asked if he preferred Davos or Westminster. And the interviewer, I was convinced, was asking it kind of as like a softball joke gimme question because she was shocked when he answered Davos. Like he was asked, what do you prefer, Davos or Westminster? And, and he says without thinking Davos. And his rationale was basically, well, you know, at Davos, you know, everyone, you know, they know what they want and we can all talk about it and go and do it. And at Westminster, it's, it's also partisan, you know. So he didn't like democratic accountability and he was being so transparent about it. When people show you who they are, when they tell you who they are, believe them. He was saying, you know what, I prefer my buddies at Davos because we can get in a room and just fix everything and then go for hot chocolate and cocktails at the chalet and uh, enjoy the rest of the week. Whereas at Westminster, you've got to really work for it. And, and, you know, maybe you don't get everything you want. And that is a, I I very rarely do I say this, but I completely 100% agree that Keir Starmer is telling the truth. I believe that he feels that with every fiber of his being, that if he could govern from Davos and not even have to worry, I mean, he would never get to govern, but if he could govern from Davos and not have to worry about uh, pesky democracy, uh, the world in his eyes would be a better place. And 
The Davos man has become uh, whitewashed in the current climate where people go there and they honestly don't believe this is just the, the talk shop where people just go and bloviate and do nothing. People go there because they believe it is providing solutions to the world's problems. And that's the danger when the solutions are actually the problems as they increasingly are. There was a question I believe I skipped from Nicola Timmerman, who I've met on the Mark Stein Cruises. She writes, what do you think of the news coverage of the parental rights protest in Canada? Not a mention of the many Muslim protesters who are against transgender propaganda in schools. So I actually am curious about how much this broke outside of Canada. I think Fox News, I don't know if anyone watches Fox anymore, but I think they were doing something on this. But on Wednesday... There was this massive protest that was set up originally by Muslims. And I, it was originally called the Million Person March, which is, I, I think, a bit of an homage to Louis Farrakhan. So take from that what you will. But they eventually kind of changed the name to the One Million March for Children. And it was a series of protests across the country in basically any major and even mid-tier city or town. And it was about parents' rights. And it started with Muslims, but expanded to Christians and Jews and Sikhs and Hindus and uh, atheists and, you know, people that aren't at all entertaining or engaging on the faith questions that were there because they believe that parents deserve the right to decide how their children are educated. And this has become a bit of a flashpoint issue in Canada belatedly, because th this has been going on in the U.S. for years now with, you know, critical race theory discussions, and then you get to the gender ideology stuff, and I know Libs of TikTok, that account, has done a very good job at chronicling a lot of the insanity, including, you know, a lot of the Canadian insanity that they've uh, picked up and put on that account. But uh, in Canada, it's been a relatively recent fight. I'd say within the last year that it's become as, as prominent as it has. And there, there's been a political battle line drawn as well, where some, you know, even otherwise weak and ineffectual leaders in Canadian politics are standing up for parents' rights. And it, it's polling very well. That's not to say that that's the only time you should do the right thing, but it's the only time most politicians will do the right thing is if polling happens to support it. But overwhelmingly, even non-conservative parents support parents' rights. And, and to give a bit of context, in New Brunswick, they passed a policy which is like an utterly uncontroversial policy, if you just read it, which is that they said if you're a minor under the age of 16 and you want to change your gender and name and pronouns in school, a parent must consent to it. That was the policy. The policy didn't allow schools to out kids to their parents if they were trans or gay. It just said, if we are going to, as a school, accept this new gender of yours, your parent has to sign off on it. And if you're not comfortable talking to your parent, we'll give you some support and counseling so you can work through that and whatever issues may come about there. So it was a very moderate policy that was then reported on and picked up by activists as though, you know, New Brunswick was basically rounding up the gay kids and shipping them off to Baffin Island or something. Like, it was just that this extreme thing had happened, which never happened. And then other provinces started to look at this and follow New Brunswick's lead. And we've now seen Manitoba take a strong stand for this. We've seen Saskatchewan take a, a strong stand for this. These aren't the big provinces. But then Ontario eventually did. You know, Ontario, which was one of the worst provinces in the country for COVID restrictions, despite having a nominally conservative government, has started to stand up against what the Premier of Ontario rightfully calls indoctrination taking place in schools. So this was the backdrop against which parents in Canada were saying on Wednesday, we're going to take our kids out of school for the day. We're going to march. There were at some event, you know, a few hundred people at some event, a few thousands. It was nothing like the Freedom Convoy, but it was still a very large display met with a tremendous amount of backlash and counter protest led largely, and I would say unsurprisingly, by unions. And like I was looking, there was this one, this phone call or this Zoom call that took place with a bunch of union activists that were planning their counter protest. And they, someone leaked this call, someone on it leaked it to the media, and they published this whole thing. And if you watched it, it was an hour long, and some of the stuff, I mean, the land acknowledgement took like the first 10 minutes, so that you could just sort of skip by. But if you watch this call, there was one of the activists that, again, very transparent, said, 
you know, this is a fundamentally anti-racist, or this is a fundamentally racist protest. It's anti-trans, it's anti-union, it's bigoted, it's this and that. And I'm looking at the you know, hijab-wearing Muslim woman and the bearded Muslim man that organized this. And I'm wondering if they're like the new faces of fundamental racism. And uh, look, I would probably disagree with a lot of these people on things. I'd probably disagree with them on Israel. And maybe I disagree with them on a number of domestic issues and foreign issues. But on parental rights, this is a coalition that has become a very strong and potent force in Canada. And I've warned in the past about the risks of thin coalitions, how, how sometimes the enemy of your enemy isn't your friend. But on the parental rights issue, I, I've kind of made an exception to that rule just because we are seeing so much broad spectrum support here. And I think that's the only way any of these underlying issues are really going to change. So that's kind of where we are now on on this. And, and you know, Nicola's question was about the media coverage. No, the media coverage just focused on the counter protesters of, you know, people that are throwing up the rainbow flags on their profile pictures and saying we stand against hate and all that. But they're not really engaging with the core mandate here, which is that, you know, parents wanting to know what's happening in their kids' classrooms are not the face of hate. And the more that governments and activists and media folks tell them they are the face of hate, the more they're going to dig their heels in and push back against this, which is, I think, precisely what we're seeing take place now. We have a question here from... Allison Castellina, who writes, uh, regarding Fetterman and the watering down of the U.S. Senate's dress code, I'm surprised it has not happened before. Casualness in dress came from America. It's sporty looks, jeans, and sneakers are de rigueur, even for the chic ladies of France, although they still reject torn jeans. I absolutely loathe this trend and would happily return to how people in films dressed in the slimmer 1930s, women in tight-fitting tailored suits, gloves, and even hats, men in crisp shirts and well-cut suits. I guess that late 19th century Mark does too, judging by his smart quality wardrobe. We are overdue for a swing of the pendulum to get rid of the shapeless casual wear everywhere, but one has to understand the mindset of the opposition first. Can you explain why America, I'm not implicating all readers of this website, of course, just seems to love casualness, especially jeans, so very much. I'll share a fun little story first. Back in 2010, so I I won't tell you how old I was, but I wasn't old. And I was involved in the Ann Coulter tour uh, across Canada, which Ezra Levant, who you may know, was was part of. He was introducing her. And the late Kathy Shadle, my dear friend and a dear friend of Mark's, who is no stranger to people at Stein Online, had come up to me and, you know, we were chit-chatting and she was introducing me to someone. I can't remember who it was. And she had said, oh, you know, Andrew's going to be the next Ezra Levant. And I said, well, actually, I was gunning for the next Mark Stein. And Kathy's very quick retort was, well, you'll need a tailor first. And so that's the advice. So I, I think Allison's bang on there about uh, Mark. You know, if you want to be like Mark Stein, you got to get a tailor first and worry about the political views and the writing skills and the sense of humor uh, next. You got to get the clothing down first. That's the first part of it. And, you know, let me just say, first and foremost, I do not consider myself the most stylish or best dressed person, but I have a self-awareness that seems to be missing. Uh, you know, for example, I have never been one to wear flip-flops and track suits on planes or anywhere else. I'm still like a very weird snob about the way you should dress on an airplane, which I realize is bizarre because, you know, airplanes are not comfortable, fun places. But you know what? I, generally speaking, don't go outside unless I have something with a collar on. And, you know, sometimes it may be a golf shirt with a collar. I kind of break a rule to have a nice sweater. I don't need a collar under a, a nice sweater if I have it. But but I'm I'm far less I'm far laxer than than some people are. Uh, but at the same time, I think self awareness is key. I think we have a, a society, and and North America is probably worse for this, in which people just do not think about or care about their image. It's why people will blather on loudly on phone calls in public. It's why people will uh, just go around and walk through society completely unaware of what's happening around them. It's why people walk in front of cars uh, so easily. It's why people, uh, you know, need to get pulled back from walking into the train lines at at subways and stuff. It's because people are just oblivious. And I I think that obliviousness comes, you can't just blame technology because I think the decline in dress has been going on longer than, longer than technology has been 
the thing to blame for it. Like Fetterman, though, ha has just taken this to new levels because now he's turned it into a, a shtick which means that people are going to do it because, oh, it's now cool and trendy to do it. No, it's a guy that just doesn't know how to do the buttons on his shirt, and because he just doesn't know how to button a shirt, he's just gone away with putting a hoodie and cargo shorts on, and we've all decided to view it as charming. I mean, this is a guy that it's probably a very real issue that has led to him not knowing how to dress himself, and it's become a thing. Like, I was chatting about this with someone recently because every time Zelensky shows up, somewhere without wearing a suit. It's always like the same thing, which is someone will tweet or say, oh, well, why isn't he wearing a suit? And then someone else will say, well, he's a man at war. And and we all pretend that this isn't a very deliberate decision that he's made in, in a way that's just as deliberate as I'm going to put on this suit and I'm going to wear this color tie. It, it's deliberate. And Fetterman, it may not have started off as deliberate, but it's become deliberate now. And, and I think the Democrats are so embarrassed by this, they just have to pretend that he's a trendsetter instead of being a slob. And the only way they can do that is by changing the dress code guidelines for the United States Senate, which is what they've done. Uh, I mean, Elisa Angel writes here, and I think it's a funny, I was about to make this point, but she's made it as well. Do you suppose the new lax dress code for the U.S. Senate is for Fetterman or for Zelensky? Well, I think it's both. Zelensky, they would have given the pass to on a one-off basis, but Fetterman, they need to make sure he's able to dress the way he wants like every day, because that's the only way he's ever going to show up to the Senate. I, I, I watched recently, I don't know if people like it or not, Downton Abbey, and I, we have all, but I, I have not seen the finale yet, so don't give me spoilers about the last episode, but I, I was watching Downton Abbey, and I, I found it blissfully charming how much they were scoffing at the idea of wearing a black tie tuxedo to dinner as though that was like being too modern and dressing down too much for the time. So I, I'm not full Downton Abbey with it in the sense that I don't think the black tie tuxedo is just too casual for family dinners, but I do think that perhaps we could stick uh, to some, some of the tips and tricks from the 1920s and 30s and keep those in the modern era. Patrick writes, uh, Andrew, have you heard about, uh, no, I've skipped over uh, Eric Dale here. I'll get to you in a second, Patrick. Eric Dale writes, Andrew and fellow club members, would it be fair to say that the method of our ruling class is to take advantage of a crisis, assume extraordinary powers to address said crisis, and smear anyone who questions anything, the narrative preferred by those in power? In my adult life, I've seen my country limp from one crisis to another, from 9-11 to the war on terror, and all its civil liberties we gave up for security, to the Great Recession and housing bubble, to COVID, to January 6th, to who knows what will be next. Do our elites even want normal? I think that, well, they, they do want normal, but they want their normal. And I would go beyond that as well to say that all of these crises are opportunities. I mean, the Rahm Emanuel approach that, you know, everyone treated as some big scandal really wasn't all that surprising. It's the way that people on the left have operated for, well, really, since the Great Depression, when they, they view crisis as being an opportunity and they view their solutions as being the only way forward in a, a particular situation. And I would point out that... It's going to continue happening, and the one thing that they'll do, and because they do it consistently, is that when they don't work, it's because they didn't go far enough. That's when they blame opposition, they blame demagogues, they blame critics. It's, well, we should have gone for it would have worked if we had gone further. It's like the real communism hasn't been tried defense, like, but institutionalized across every single policy. So uh, it's what they use with gun control when, you know, there's gun crime after a sweeping gun ban. It's, well, it's because the NRA wouldn't let us ban enough guns. We, If they had let us ban everything, then we would have gotten it. And, you know, if we uh, have a musket shooting, we're going to say that we should have gone and gotten rid of the muskets and all that. And, you know, I think for most people, they're so focused on the crisis, they don't really think too critically of the response to the crisis. And then when the crisis has passed, we're all just so grateful it's over, we don't really critically engage with everything that happened in it. And this is, to be honest, a very big problem I'm seeing in the wake of the COVID world, because all of these things that happen, vaccine mandates, curfews, vaccine passports, travel restrictions, limitations on how you can visit your family, people whose funerals never got to take place, people who got married on Zoom, all of it, you name it, life-ruining things. 
no one wants to really have the conversation of, well, what actually happened there? And why did it happen? And should there be accountability? Should there be justice? No one wants to do that. I shouldn't say no one. The, the skeptics do, the deniers, as we're all called, do. But then we're told, oh, get over it. COVID's over now. It was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Just move on. And then the next time it comes around, we'll have forgotten the last time, they hope, and, and now we'll deal with it, and the process will repeat. But that's the pattern, and it's why no one is really calling a pandemic inquiry. I mean, we have the one in the UK, which is ending up becoming basically a, a rubber stamping of what the government did. Maybe they'll wag a few fingers at the end of it, but... Where's the great COVID inquiry in the United States? Where's the great, great COVID inquiry in Canada? Where's the great COVID inquiry in Australia? Uh, Canada has done something, I don't know if other countries have, where a citizen group came together and formed the National Citizens Inquiry. And I think they've obviously had testimony that was incredibly impactful. They, they've produced a report on an interim basis, but the media ignores it. And when they ultimately will come out with their final report, it will tell us what uh, people that were skeptical of government actions already knew. And from there, won't really go anywhere and won't do anything. So I think this cycle that you talk about, Eric, is a very important one. And I, I'm getting a little bit more pessimistic the more I speak about it as to whether it actually has a resolution. Because right now, I am afraid to say I am not seeing it. Andy writes, uh, shut up, ink is alive and... Oh, sorry, Patrick, I'm skipping. Oh, I don't know why my screen is bouncing around. Well, I'll do Andy's first. Um, no, I promise I'd do Patrick. I'd do Patrick now. Have you heard about uh, Argentine presidential candidate Javier Millet? I apologize if I'm announcing uh, the, pronouncing the name incorrectly. Uh, he appears to be a Milton Friedman-style libertarian who, unlike the American Gary Johnson-style libertarians, so eager to ingratiate themselves with the media is a cultural conservative and happy warrior eager to dispel the myths of socialism and communism. I see he even dedicated a segment of his TV show a few months back to criticizing Biden's FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago and the lack of equality before the law under socialism. Perhaps there's still hope from Western civilization when even Argentina can produce such a specimen as Millet. Uh, to be honest, I've been wanting to do more digging into the guy. I've seen the photos and I've seen the headlines and all of that. And I saw how much everyone in the officialdom world was uh, like ragging on him and didn't like him. And my, my general rule is that, well, I, I don't believe, and I said a few moments ago that the enemy of your enemy is your friend. I do believe that you can tell a lot about someone by their enemies. And I think what's interesting here is that, like, anytime I see the people I've seen, like, not liking this guy, I have to assume there's probably some merit to him that I should pay attention to. So I, I, I don't know enough about him to, like, formulate a judgment, but generally speaking, he's angering the wrong people, which I think is a darn good start. And uh, you say even Argentina, but I, I think, you know, we view North America as being the way that liberty is supposed to be finding its way forward. But I, I really don't think that's the case anymore. I think it's people in Europe that I've seen more explicit examples of statism and socialism. And certainly that's the case in South America and uh, Central America as well. I think they're the ones to watch out for because they've seen it and they've had more time to live with it and understand the dangers of it. So I think that's where we're seeing the pushback taking place. And I, I think we do need to be paying attention here. Andy writes, Shut Up Inc. is alive and well. I just heard on the 3 p.m. news that, I didn't know there was a 3 p.m. news, uh, that Andy Ngo's speech in Richmond, Virginia has now been moved to a third undisclosed location after both the Commonwealth Club and Western Hotel caved to Antifa threats. Yeah, it's tragic and unsurprising. I know Andy's used to this by now, but that doesn't make it right. And, you know, it goes back to the old parallel society's thesis. Is the only way society can function if the conservatives, and by that I mean the, the freedom speech, freedom of speech folks, just buy our own venues? Do we have to set up conservative hotels and conservative banquet censors and conservative ticketing platforms to buy tickets to them and then conservative banks to process the payments? And, like, and at a certain point, you realize that you've already lost because you've needed to create this own ghetto, this little ghetto that you can operate in while the rest of the world is run by our enemies. And uh, that is why it, it's so difficult here. And I, I think it segues into a, a good topic that I, I think we should end on here. 
And I, I have a lot of questions uh, on this that I will uh, try to kind of summarize here. Uh, Chris Davies writes, Andrew, welcome back. Does the attempted de-platforming of Russell Brand's show that nothing has been learnt from the Kevin Spacey guilty until proven or innocent debacle. I'd also welcome your views on the enactment of the online safety bill and the commensurate chilling effect on free speech if time permits. Well, I think I can do it in one fell swoop, Chris. Elisa writes, I looked up your appearance on Russell Brand's show after you mentioned it the other week. It was a good interview. I see that you didn't meet him in person, but I wonder what you think of Russell Brand and the current allegations against him. Uh, Jeff writes, what do you think of the allegations and their timing against Russell Brand? The man is guilty without a trial, simply trial by media. Even worse is the letter from a parliament committee asking Rumble if they're going to follow YouTube and demonetize him. I foolishly watched a clip from GB News where one of Dube's guests approved of the committee's actions and said, we don't know if Brand is innocent. That hasn't been proven yet. Uh, this person writes, uh, Jeff writes, what holy hell presumption of innocence is simply some quaint relic of a bygone era, it seems. I So... I, I, I don't know Russell Brand. I, I've spoken to him on his show twice. I had only positive interactions with him, but my only interactions with Russell Brand have been interactions that are publicly available that you can see on his show. I, I've had good interactions with a member of his, his team. I was actually trying to get him on my show a while back, and, and just the timing hadn't worked out yet. I, I watched him in Hollywood, and I, to be honest, never thought too much of him until he popped up a, as kind of a free-thinking type in the last couple of years. So if you had told, here, here's where I would, I'm going to both sides this, and I, I don't like doing that, and I, I don't like being accused of fence-sitting, but right now I am actually sitting on a fence, so I might as well get comfortable and hope that the post is not protruding too much in me as I sit here, because if you had shared the allegations that have been leveled against him of sexual assault, of, of rape, of, of you know misconduct broadly, a few years ago, and I were to know nothing about his political views, I would say, oh, wow, another creepy Hollywood celebrity. And that would be that. I'd think he has a right to defend himself, that, that uh, the accusers should be challenged if uh, their accusations are going to carry any weight. But I wouldn't feel the knee-jerk reaction to defend him. And I'll fully admit that I feel, or did feel, inst my, an instinct when this first came out to defend him because that's what you want to do when someone is being canceled. You want to defend them because cancel culture so often invites unjust outcomes that we automatically assume, I think a lot of us, that people who are facing cancellation have done nothing wrong, when the reality is people do wrong things, and, and people do terrible things, and it's unfortunate, and it's especially unfortunate if someone you respect does it. So the allegations are plausible. His denial is plausible. I have no way of assessing the personal merit of either, and for me to say one way or another that I should unquestioningly believe one side or the other is wrong. And this is why in criminal justice, we err on the side of innocence. Why someone is innocent until proven guilty. But the reason we err on the side of innocence is because the penalty of, of you know, surrendering your life and livelihood by being put in jail is so steep that we could not do it unless we are absolutely sure. We do not really have an obligation in civil society outside of the justice system to view someone as innocent until they're proven guilty. Everyone is going to, in their own minds, establish their own level, their own threshold level of guilt. And we have to decide whether something has the ring of truth. We have to decide whether something is plausible or believable. And we ultimately have to decide who we want to believe more than others. Uh, Christine Blasey Ford versus Brett Kavanaugh, a great example of that. At the end of it, we heard the accusations. We heard the defense. We all had to decide which we thought made more sense. And we have to live with whatever conclusion we draw, knowing that we'll never know the truth. And to go to the Russell Brand stuff, I don't know. I can't say that I know. I can say that the stakes are tremendously high, though, 
with cancel culture. You may not be thrown in jail, but you will lose everything you have ever worked for if you are not, as Russell Brand is, able to produce your show independently without people like YouTube disseminating it and without a lot of reliance on advertisers, although he does have advertisers, and I I know there's going to be a lot of equivocation on that. I think Rumble has done the right thing here. Rumble has done what YouTube should have done and what YouTube pretends to do, which is say, well, we're just a platform. Like, we're a platform. We don't need to weigh in on this. What, What YouTube did in demonetizing Russell Brand was disgraceful. They said, because people have accused him of something, we are not going to let him make money on our platform. They did not, so far as I'm aware, give him any ability to refute that. They did not ask for his side. YouTube just decided it would institutionalize cancel culture, full stop, without equivocation. When you behave like that, you are no longer, quote unquote, just a platform, which is what these networks try to do to abdicate responsibility and liability under Section 230 and and all of this other stuff. So Rumble's view is actually the morally pure position here, which is we're a platform. If he violates the terms of service that we have on our platform for content you say on the platform, we'll deal with it. But what he does or doesn't do or is accused of doing outside of it has nothing to do with us. And I think that this is where you get into what the Online Safety Act, to go back to Chris Davies' question, is trying to do. They're trying to make the state more and more involved in what publications and platforms that are private in nature can do. Imagine if the online safety bill was in full force when this Russell Brand stuff came up and all of a sudden the government wants to make a case that Russell Brand being on YouTube is an online harm. Oh, he, he's traumatizing people that have been victimized by uh, sexual violence, therefore you need to take him down. Now, maybe there's a case where YouTube says, no, we aren't going to do that. But when you give the government license to regulate online content, you're really just talking about a question of degrees from there. That's it. You're talking about a question of degrees and just hoping that government and big tech will not abuse the power they have. And the big tech companies will not, in the interest of expediency, just go around and click censor, 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 because it's a lot easier than dealing with these pesky regulators. So just give them what they want. And all of a sudden, the government has deputized these companies. So I don't know. Russell Brand has a right to defend the accusers, defend against the accusers. And I fully believe that there should be penalties for false accusations, as I believe there should be penalties for doing the things that he is accused of. I mean, whether these things should be equivalent in nature, I don't know. I I do believe there is a fundamental imbalance that you can anonymously make accusations and, and really deny someone the right to face their accuser which is what happens here. I don't yet know what the solution to it is. I I do think that innocent until proven guilty is meant to be a criminal concept. It's not something that we have to, in our own minds, live by. But I do think that we all as humans have to set our own threshold and live by it. And, And ultimately, we're always going to have to be taking a leap of faith. And you're either taking the leap of faith in believing Russell Brand because you like him and you're a fan of his, or you're taking a leap of faith in believing accusers. And what I would say is that your decision on this should have nothing to do with what you think of what someone says. And Kevin Spacey is a great example there. Here's a guy that I don't particularly agree with politically and and probably would have found the allegations to be somewhat plausible when they first came out. But following Anne McElhenney and Phelan McAleer and their work on this and the actual trial, you see that the accusations were not just credibly challenged, but in some cases were shattered. And I don't need to like Kevin Spacey to respect that process at work. And I I think that the problem with trial by media is that it becomes the, the the process is already done and over with by the time anyone learns of the allegations. And and that is not justice. It, It just isn't. Uh, That does it for our time today. I thank you for all those questions here, and I I thank you for uh, some of the comments that are uh, going to perhaps come in the wake of it. As mentioned, if you uh, dislike anything I said, feel free to chime in there. And I I try not to avoid, because usually I kind of take the view that I I say what I say, and I I, I don't often have more to add to it, but uh, sometimes I might weigh in there. So 
Nevertheless, I thank you so much for tuning in. Hope to see you all on the upcoming Mark Stein cruise. This is going to be in the Caribbean, and I'm going to be there. Conrad Black will be there, Ava Vlardingerbrook and Leilani Dowding, and it'll be lots of fun. Uh, Michelle Bachman, James Golden. So that's going to be great, and I hope to see you there. Uh, we leave in, I don't know, how many months? Four months? No, I'm, I'm mixing it up. I think six months' time from now. So you still got time to uh, get that uh, Speedo and get the body in shape so you don't look like the old Fetterman on the Lido deck. But uh, with that, have a wonderful weekend, anyone, everyone, and we will see you next time. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.